Hello, welcome to the Healing Out Loud podcast with me, your host, Jackie Shea. I believe that if you want to overcome obstacles and thrive in life, then fierce self-advocacy and hopeful connection through shared experience are necessary ingredients. Healing Out Loud is designed to bring you just that, inspiring, relatable voices that have made it through their darkest days to ultimate triumph by advocating for themselves and engaging with empowering self-care tools. I want you to start thriving today. If you like what you hear and want more, there are three ways you can stay in touch with me. Follow me on Instagram at Jackie. Join my newsletter at JackieShea.com or contact me directly through JackieShea.com and I will see how I can support you and meet your specific needs as a coach. If you are interested in deepening your knowledge around trauma, Deborah and I have a special complimentary offering happening right now. Write to me through my website and I will hook you up. So today, hello, I am speaking with Deborah Thompson-Cox. Deborah has a private practice specializing in addressing the after effects of childhood trauma in adults by using modalities like somatic experiencing, early attachment patterning, and kundalini yoga. Deborah is based in the greater Los Angeles area, but works with people, her work with people extends across the country probably in other countries too. Hi, Deborah. Hi. <laughs> thank you, Jackie. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm always, you know me, I'm always happy to talk about trauma. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun topic. We have a workshop. Yeah. Believe it or not, it, it can be. <laughs> I know we have a, we have, it depends on how you talk about it. We have a workshop yeah. coming up this starting tomorrow and then for a couple of weeks. And I keep telling people it's going to be so fun. Yeah. <laughs> Childhood trauma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, and that is one of the things I, I, I like to uh, let people know, especially whenever they first start this work is that, yeah, in the beginning, you're going to, you know, obviously experience some big emotions and big feelings because certain things have to be addressed. But ultimately, eventually, it moves out of the discomfort and moves more into uh, the education, which is huge when, whenever it comes to understanding trauma. And then out of the education um, comes a sense of full acceptance, understanding of one's own self, one's own situation. And then ultimately, uh, believe it or not, there's a level of empowerment that steps forward. And then out of that, the whole, your whole world just kind of opens up. Mm. You begin to see and experience opportunities that maybe were unnoticed before because we were so like held in this heavy sense of holding on and trying to control and uh, uh, hopefully no one would see, no one would see our secret, the mm. secret trauma deep inside of us. So it, it's, it's, it's game changing, game changing. So I think what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that just educating yourself around trauma, what it is, how it affects us, how it happens, we can actually start healing just by the education piece. That helps a lot because a lot of folks, I know myself included, whenever I was doing my own work, a lot of times we hold on to old stories that were told to us by the very folks that were harming us. 
And so we believed it. And so whenever uh, we begin this kind of work, a part of the work is going in and re-educating ourselves about what actually happened and how and why, like what happened to us and how it happened, who were the perpetrators, what was done, and really look at that stuff to understand that, you know what, it really wasn't my fault. I was just a little kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's so right on. I mean, I think it's a big way that I started to heal too, was just the education piece. Um, I I think there's something really powerful to having a name for something, because when we have a name for something, we go, wait, if there's a name for this, I must not be alone, right? If there's a name for the way I act or behave or feel, then it must be common enough that someone studied it to have a name for it. Exactly. Exactly. And what, uh, what ultimately ends up happening by understanding, for instance, the nervous system, that's one thing that I like to introduce people to is, you know, what's really going on with the nervous system? You know, once they begin to understand how the nervous system operates, once they begin to understand and begin to learn about, and this is like a hot topic right now in a lot of different uh, areas in mental health is, are the attachment patterns that we develop while growing up in our family environments. Once we begin to understand and see how those developed and why, I see a lot of people's eyes brighten up because all of a sudden they realize it's not my fault. Mm. And they and all and then they begin to realize that they're not there's nothing to be ashamed of. Well, of course. Of course that happened to me. Of course, this is the way I am and as an adult. Look what happened, you know, and it just it just the, the pieces of the puzzle, we begin to fit them together to create this full, uh, beautiful image of the the entire life. And then once we have that, then we can make start making sense of it all. Mm. Sometimes we just don't know, we don't understand. Right, right. Beautiful. So tell, tell us a little bit about how you got here. I mean, people don't just choose this profession. So what happened to you? (laughs) Well, how much time do you have? Uh, Well, I grew up in a very chaotic, abusive environment, uh, basically included all five, you know, physical, emotional, sexual, intellectual, spiritual. I mean, I knocked all five right out of the ballpark and, uh, lucky you. I know lucky <laughs> me. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I really, the thing about it is, is I really didn't, um, I was quite, I was, I was high functioning for a number of years. I don't know why, I don't know what, but somehow, some way I was a high functioning traumatized person for many, many years, all the way up until I'd say my late thirties. And I don't know exactly what happened or why, but all of a sudden I started, what I was doing before wasn't working anymore. And I started to drink more heavily. I was smoking a lot. I started to self-medicate. And eventually, as we all know, that works until it doesn't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was a little bit of a hot mess as 
you know, some people say. And so, yeah, I, I, I went into full on alcoholism, drug addiction. Uh, I almost lost my marriage. Uh, I, I lo almost lost a lot, uh, knock on wood. Uh, for some reason, uh, I came to a place where I had that one little aha moment where I had to make a decision of whether or not I was going to continue or was I going to try to do something different. And that's whenever I feel like my, my journey of healing recovery began. And I did enter into a 12-step program. And from that point on, uh, it was just unfolding, unfolding. Uh, that was good. That was very good in helping me get sober. But then once I was sober, then all of the other stuff started coming up. The reasons why I was drinking, the reason why I was smoking and using, all of that stuff started coming up. And finally, you know, God bless, I had a beautiful sponsor at that time. And she's like, girl, you either go see Dr. Arlene or I'm not working with you anymore. Mm -hmm. She literally said that to me. And so I did, I made that phone call and I started, uh, I think it took about five years of really, real solid uh, cognitive the uh, behavior therapy. Then after that, I came across Kundalini. Uh, that was a game changer because it really brought me back into my body. But then that also brought up a whole new level of uh, healing. And that's whenever I stumbled across Peter Levine's work. And of course, Peter Levine, he's known throughout the mental health community as developing uh, a modality he started out in the 90s, I think, uh, uh, developed a modality called uh, somatic experience. Somatic experiencing practitioner, SEP work. And so I went through his program. I mean, and then it, things just took off. And I've been working with others who deal with trauma, childhood trauma, using those techniques. I continue my training. I'm also moving. I've already moved into a whole new level of training that basically uh, uh, brings together, integrates not only the somatic, but also the psychology, the ISP. And that's uh, being taught by a wonderful man named Raja uh, Selvman, if anyone's listening who would be interested in checking him out. Uh, but that's why I'm here. I mean, basically, I have gone through so much and I know how to walk through it. And I just have this desire to share what I have with others because it was so helpful for me. I know what it feels like. I know what that bottom feels like. And what I also, does that bottom feel like, Deborah? Oh, tell well, us. Well, for me, I can explain for me if anyone relates to it. I just remember one morning waking up and having absolutely no sense of myself, uh, no sense of opportunity left in my life. Uh, I felt completely out of control uh, and I couldn't even stop drinking. I just couldn't stop it because it was the only thing I, I could, that could shut down, who could, all of the, 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 the voices and thinking in my head. And uh, I just woke up and I, I just, I didn't, I had no options. I had no options. And in fact, I, I, I did, I said this prayer. I don't think I've ever shared this with anyone. Um, 
I, uh, I said to the universe, I said, you better change this or I'm out of here. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know that feeling too. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. And uh, and guess what? I even put a time I even put a time limit on it. I said, so you got six months. Mm. You got six months. You either change this or I'm done. I, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And within six months, yes, there was a shift. Yes, there was hope. Yes, I had a plan. Yes, I had a program. Yes, 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 yes. And then it just went straight up from there. So mm. It's so interesting. So do you consider your alcoholism and your drinking problem a direct result of trauma? Oh, absolutely. It's, it was what I was using to control and suppress all of these huge emotions uh, that, and it's really, the only way I can describe the feeling is for me, it was more anxiety. I had, that was all I knew. I felt anxious about everything. Everything was like, I was like this. I didn't realize what was really underneath all of that anxiety. And I didn't realize that until I started working with a really good, solid therapist who specialized, and I say this, who specializes in trauma therapy. There's a lot of wonderful therapists who are do very well at what they do. But whenever we're talking about uh, childhood trauma, you need to be, I needed to be with someone who really understood all that whole paradigm of what was going on inside of me. And I found that. I found someone wonderful. Her name is Dr. Arlene Drake. If you've got a phone, you dial her up right now and call her. Uh, and she walked me through five wonderful years of healing. And, and that was cognitive behavioral therapy, that but it was trauma focused. But it was trauma focused in a mm. very specific way. And she really held that container well for me. I mean, you know, one thing about kids growing up that we forget about is that we think it's all our fault. Like I did, I'm bad. I am bad. We feel viscerally like we are bad, bad, bad. We did something wrong. Plus, I grew up in the South. I grew up in the Bible Belt where it's taught that you are born evil. Mm. <laughs> so I got that reinforcement from every direction. The reason why I was sexually abused was because I enticed the perpetrator mm. to sexually. It was my fault. It was all my fault. <laughs> yeah. So, and she, she had the capacity to sit there in front of me and go, no, no. That's not your fault. And then she began to educate me. Mm. Yeah. Education, I think, changed changed my ex experience, too. I needed to be educated because I, too, my trauma definitely resulted in me going, I'm bad. I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. I... <laughs> I ruin my trauma was very, is very, I ruin people. I make yes. people want to die, right? <laughs> like it was really. And so, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I will very openly say that that's still a work in progress, but, oh. but yeah. So the education all, uh, for me also freed me quickly, but I'm really interested in what you're saying too, about your alcoholism, because it really reminds me of Dr. Gabor Mate. Oh. 
and his, you know, his take on addiction is so wonderful. And I think I, I too am an addict and I'm opposite you. I started young and got sober really young at 17. So, but for me, the alcohol and the drugs were my direct coping mechanism and they kept me alive for those years. Mm -hmm. So it just makes me think like addiction isn't solved until you look at the root of why, why it's there in the first place, even if we believe that it's a disease and, and all of that. Um, yeah, you're just hitting on these really great points. So you did the education and you started NCBT. You got really passionate about this as you started to heal and you went through Peter Levine's program and his book to get to know more about him is awakening the tiger within yes. or yeah, awakening yeah. of the tiger. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great book if you want to learn about somatic experiencing. Yeah. And so waking can, the tiger, waking the tiger, waking the tiger. Yeah. Yeah. Peter Levine, waking the tiger. Yeah. So can you tell us, uh, just explain somatic experiencing more? What is it? Okay. Well, <laughs> basically uh, somatic, which means going into the body and uh, and then allow okay okay we, we need to back up we need to back up great okay back us up that, let's back up let's uh, uh and this is like step one a working a working definition of trauma okay is it can be a anything a single event or a series of events that overwhelm the nervous system Okay. Did you hear what I just said? It can a be single a single event or a series of events that overwhelm the nervous system. Exactly. And we keep it broad like that simply because Jackie, like what may overwhelm my nervous system for you might be like, what's the big deal? You know, I, you know, I have a really, really, uh, adverse, uh, reaction to, uh, uh, a cockroach, which is a very specific insect. Uh huh. <laughs> and, and that's not because of childhood trauma. I and that's not it. because of childhood trauma. And remember, trauma, and that's another reason why we keep it broad because trauma could be medical trauma. It can be an accident. It can be a simple slip and fall, falling downstairs. It can be, you don't even have to actually physically experience trauma. You can actually witness a violent or serious situation. And if the visual overwhelms the nervous system, that's trauma. So that's why we keep it open because it's so broad. Everyone's different. We don't know how people are going to uh, process this kind of information that comes in. And so understanding that a lot of people, if they don't process the trauma, they hold on to it. They hold on to it in their body and they may not even realize consciously or mindfully understand that they're actually holding the trauma in the body, in the muscle, just like muscle memory athletes work with in order. They don't want to know that they're running. They just know that the muscles need to start to instantly run the moment they hear that little pistol go off. Same premise. You know, they, they don't want to have to think about how they're going to aim and then shoot the ball into the hoops. It's just instant. That's called muscle memory. Very basic. And so the same is said with trauma. We hold on to this kind of programming in our muscles, in our bodies. 
and time, even if it's only, these can be little traumas. Remember this, there's big traumas, you know, but then there's also, you can experience a, a series of little T's, what we call little T's over a period of time that we add up and we hold and we hold and we hold and our muscles are getting more tight and tight and tight or we're leaving our bodies, we're dissociating more and more and more till you add it all up, you're in a state of what we call PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, you know, and that in itself has a lot of different symptoms, you know, depending upon who you are and what you've experienced. And so with the somatic- uh, Wait, I have a question. Okay. Sorry. So our brains are about 90% the same as a a chimpanzee's, for example. My microphone fell. Hi, sorry. Um, (laughs) Our brains are, maybe it's even more than 90%. It could be like 96% or something, but essentially, it's up there. there. (laughs) Essentially our brains are animal, right? Like we, our brains are very related to animals. Okay. So animals, correct me if I'm wrong, do not hold their trauma. No, they don't store it. They don't hold it. They don't get messed up by it later. So what is it in the brain in the small percentage that is so different? Now, look, most animals have, we share, I think 50% of our brains with, cause it's the brain stem and the, and the limbic system, but not the, the cortex, cortex right? Is, yeah. The most sophisticated part, right? So yes. is it our cortex, the part of our brain that wants to study and learn and ask, ask the hard questions that makes us hold the trauma? What is it, Deborah, that makes a human hold the trauma and not an animal? That's a good question, Jackie. <laughs> Somebody tell me. No, no. How much time do we have? Okay. Short answer. Short answer. We were just never taught how to release the trauma. Mm. I don't know about you, but my parents didn't sit there and go, Deb, let's make a repair. Let's talk about what just happened and let's see if we can do things differently. No one did that to me. And I'm not saying that the chimpanzee's mom does that with her chimps, but what they learn by observing their uh, their, Mm. uh, family dynamic, if you want to call it that is they watch their mom and they learn from her how to handle the trauma. And it's the primary caretaker's responsibility to basically mirror, reflect to the children, show the children how to handle certain situations. Do Mm. we need to downregulate? Well, this is how you downregulate. We just kind of hold, we breathe, we sit, we co-regulate, we look into each other's eyes. You're safe, I'm safe, blah, 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 blah. Or we need to upregulate. Again, that's 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 now you're getting into early childhood, you know, development where the caregiver are they showing their children how and if, and who i mean very few caregivers are doing that in america certainly in the western world yeah yeah just because again education we're not taught we're, we're not, not taught, taught. we're, we're not, not shown taught. you're not so you know if you want to get into how the brain actually operates i mean you know this this is my favorite this is my favorite 
uh, uh, little gland in the entire brain. <laughs> Ooh, it's the amygdala. I love mm -hmm. the amygdala because that's the little part of your brain that is, you know, well, there's other parts that are out there scanning. They're like scanning the horizon, looking for things. What's going on? What's the temperature? Is the sun out? Is it rain? All this kind of stuff. And it sends back this data into our brain. Then the amygdala opens up the file cabinets. And this is the implicit memory. This is the subconscious memory. Open it up and it's comparing. It's like, is there anything in here that reminds me of danger? And then all of a sudden it finds a file. Oh my God, danger, danger. Then the amygdala alerts the entire system primarily the, the pituitary gland, which sends a message down to the adrenals. The adrenals begin to release and distribute the uh, stress hormones. And then everything is on high alert. Everything is like danger, danger. That's how it works in a very simple way. And so, right. you know, and these are memories. Remember, our muscles are storing the memories. I mean, they've already, they already know how to fight. They mm -hmm. already know how to run. They already know how to hide. They've they've been learning this stuff since you were born, whenever the trauma started. So that's why it's such an automatic response. Right. You don't right. Even, you're not even. It's there. primal. It's primal. Exactly. Right. That's, you know, it triggers the cerebellum. Cerebellum just is muscle, you know, muscle movement, you know, how far perception, all of that stuff. So it's, it's, it's just right there, right there, right there. That's, and we also need to understand this. This is another fascinating thing about how the brain works is, you know, the body, the whole body is, it uses our five senses, our primary five senses of sight and taste and touch and uh, uh, sight and smell and hearing. It's, it's like, it's all tuned in order to read what's going on. And so this stuff is instantaneous. That's why someone can walk into a room wearing a red sweater, or here's my story. Someone can walk into the room wearing red lipstick because one of my abusers, that's what she wore was mm -hmm. this bright red lipstick. And every time they, I would just bristle up. I would, mm -hmm. I just, my body would automatically move and I'd feel anxious. And I think I'd create a story about this person. Well, obviously she's a bad person. That's why I'm having this, this, yeah. I don't trust her in reality. Yeah. No, it's just my, my little brain saw the red lipstick reminded it of the person 20, 30 years ago. And there I go. Right. Right. Yeah. And I have the same, I know mine too, the smell of smoke, forget it. I'm gone. I'm out of there. The smell of smoke in a car worse. This thing, the a messy hair. I mean, I have all kinds of ridiculous, yeah. not ridiculous, but things that yeah. I have associations, negative associations, yeah. and it works the other way. Yes. Right. Because I had a hand sanitizer recently that I sprayed and it reminded me uh -oh of my grandfather yes, and I was just blissful, right? Yes. Works yes. the other way. Yeah, it does. Uh, my grandmother loved me dearly. Loved this woman. I just miss her, but her favorite fragrance was rose. Mm. So every time I, I smell roses, I hear you. And look, it's so interesting because it's like, this is the education piece, right? It's this like when you have that education and somebody with red lipstick walks into the room, you're not just going to immediately go into fight, flight, or freeze. You're right. going to go, oh, red lipstick. The story I'm making up isn't totally valid. Like it, it's coming from someplace else. Yeah. 
Right. And it allows me, it allows me to make a, a key decision here. Is this a perceived threat? Meaning something that I'm afraid of that from my past, because like you said, the red lipstick or the, the smoke in the car, it's reminding, is this perceived or is this an actual threat? Because sometimes there is an actual threat. <laughs> right. And it happens to be attached to red lipstick or smoke. <laughs> yeah, but there is an actual, but it, it gives me that moment of pause and mindfulness that I can really, and this is where we move up into the frontal cortex, which, you know, because usually like you were pointed out before, we just automatically go back to the cerebellum. But now, because we're aware, we have a, a more analytical, mindful understanding of what's going on, then rather than going back to the cerebellum, we we take a you we take a we take a different a detour. We go in a different direction. We go into the frontal cortex that is more about our analytical, our decision making, has more of our linear uh, thought patterns, and right. we decide. Right. And I'm just thinking of animals right now. And it's like, it's a lot less complicated for them because they're going to, you know, the, the antelope is going to see the lion and pretty much always that lion's going to be a threat. Right. So they're, so they're, they're prepared. They've made the association. They know, and they're right. Pretty much 99.9% of the time. So it's like, run. Right. So we don't have tigers chasing us. And and I know this gets talked about all the time, but, but we react like a tiger's chasing us when we see red lipstick. So it's like this, this very, it's a lot more complex in the human world on earth than it is in the wild. Um, yes. Yes. So that's interesting. Now I want to, I want to bring us back to somatic. So here's what I'm going to, how, here's how I'm thinking of doing that. So here I come to you. You're oh. my, you're my somatic experiencing therapist practitioner, okay. yes. which is real. Everyone, Deborah is amazing. She is, she <laughs> is mine. <laughs> and, um, I came to you with a hyperactive nervous system, right? My nervous system was, uh, just, I grew up in a home where the stress response was daily and could be extreme, overwhelming, severe. And it was constant, right? And so I have this really amazing brain that picks up things really fast. This is the benefit. I remember everything. I know what facial expression, I know what smell, I know what thing. I am on point, right? But it's also really overwhelming for my body. And that's how I came to you. And I was like, I want to do the somatic work because I feel it in my body. And now tell us, tell us, please, what the approach becomes from there as a somatic experiencing practitioner. Well, uh, the way I approach it is uh, first, I have to uh, create a space whereby it's not, I I, I am speaking to, and I was speaking uh, uh, to you, Jackie. But in a way, I was sitting with your body. I was building a rapport with your body because the traumas in your body, I didn't necessarily, I mean, it's great to talk, blah, 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 blah. But what I was trying to do is to create a safe enough space and a container to where your body and my body could begin on a very subtle level, begin to co-regulate with each other. 
And I did that with the prosody of my voice. I did that with the gleaming eyes looking into your eyes. I did that by carefully listening to you and kind of repeating back to you. I, there were many, many different things that I was trying. I was basically trying to parent. This is what a, a primary caregiver does with their children, with their babies, is to give you, create a sense of safety so that your body could then begin to relax enough just enough so that you would, you, Jackie, would feel comfortable enough to start coming back into her body. And then we began to work on little, if you recall, we had like these little push, push exercises because there were certain inescapable events that you had experienced in your life where you just couldn't leave, you couldn't fight, you couldn't run. You, were, you just had to sit there and take it. And so allowing the body to actually complete that action of pushing back in a way allows it to release, to complete, to complete the action of no, I am not going to take this anymore. I even had you speak the words many times and we still go through that same kind of process on different levels, different ways, but it's all about allowing the body to feel safe enough that it can release the trauma, it can shake, it can, it can just relax and know that it's safe. It's safe now. And that's really the core of somatic healing. You yeah, know, and it's we already know the story. You right. already knew your story, frontwards, backwards, up and down. But I wanted to tell it because I wanted to stay in my head. And you kept, yeah. right, I want to tell the story, the story, the story. And it's not about the story. Mm -hmm. So I have this interesting thing coming to me about the animals again. And it's like, so one of the things I've experienced from you, which you just described, is that the somatic work is about completing the cycle of fight or flight, not mm -hmm. really freeze, right? We're really completing the cycle of fight or flight. Sometimes well, free well, freeze too, because people, they, they get stuck in freeze. I mean, anything huh. happens, they freeze. So we have to work through that too. Right. And, and by working through freeze, though, we're getting into motion, movement usually. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So we're not working through it the same way by going all the way into freeze. No, or, no. We want right. to come out of the, they already know right. how to freeze. <laughs> to get the hell out of freeze. <laughs> we need to get out of there. <laughs> so, so it's, so I'm thinking about the, the antelope, right? Who runs yeah. from the lion or fights yeah. the lion. And the antelope isn't thinking, God, I look like such an idiot running right now, or God, I look so stupid fighting, you know, or God, this is so socially unacceptable. The <laughs> antelope and their, their mother, their primary caregiver hasn't taught them that, you know, it looks weird when you fight or flight, right? So no. they're just, one of the things animals do is they follow they just follow through fight or flight naturally or freeze. When they go into freeze, they pass out. Maybe they urinate because it gives off the set sense that they're dead. And then they get up and shake it off. And when they go into fight or flight, they follow it all the way through and then shake it off. Right. Correct. And what happens to us and what you're describing, some people might understand you. Others might not, which is why I'm going yes. deeper oh, into no, it. Please, please, please. I no. is that I wanted to fight as a kid and I couldn't because I was told I was not allowed. I wanted to run as a kid, but I was told, don't you dare leave this house. And so 
it gets trapped and you don't go through with it. And then all your life, all my life continued on. Don't fight. Don't run, you know, handle it, stick with it. Don't show, don't show your weakness. And then by the time we get to our somatic therapist, we are hold. I was holding so many stored fight or flight responses. Exactly. 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 And, and let's, let's talk about this because this has a lot to do with the work that you do with others too, uh, with being a health advocate coach, things like that. Uh, you know, uh, we've, uh, you know, there's the ACE, the, uh, what is it? Uh, adverse childhood experiences. Yeah, the adverse child uh, uh, experiences. This, that was uh, put together by Kaiser about 20 or plus years ago. And what they did is they took a collection of their patients and they gave them the survey. It's about 10 questions. It's real, real, real quick, 10 questions. And then they, they compared it to the health records that they already had on file for all of these folks. And they were actually able to uh, correlate a direct relationship between how many questions they answered yes to, to various types of health issues that they were having as adults. So there is a direct correlation to holding on to all of this stress and trauma that we've collected over the years in how we're going to experience health as adults. And so I had, I got, I got to tell you this, this is hilarious. So I had the opportunity. I was in one of my classes and the instructor brought out the ACE exam, passed it out, told everyone, let's take the ACE exam. We did. And I was so excited, man. I was like, okay, check, 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 check. <laughs> number six, check, number seven, check. And I'm like, oh, am I going to get like 10 out of 10? <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm going to get 10 out of 10. Check, check. And I think I got down to the very last question. And it, as it turns out, the one thing, the one thing that I wanted to happen whenever I was a kid didn't happen. And I was like, and I saw so I couldn't do all 10. And that question was, were your parents ever sent to prison? And I was like, I wish my parents had been sent to prison. No, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Seriously. Well, you know, but I, so I didn't get the full 10. (laughs) As a person with a parent in prison, (laughs) let me tell you. Okay. I'm sorry, Doug. I, you know, I hear you. I know where you, but But as a a person who wanted their parents to go to prison. (laughs) I mean, my thing too, was that I desperately wanted my parents to get divorced and they didn't get divorced until I was 18 uh, and 17. So I still, so I still have a yes to that question, but I desperately wished they would get divorced when I was much, much younger. So I I totally understand that. And it's so funny, right? Because you're like, teach, I got nine out of 10. And the teacher's like, are you, do you have heart disease? (laughs) But you look so healthy. What's going on? Why, you know, you're, you know, and higher you're I'm 60 plus <laughs> and yet I'm relatively a very healthy adult and you know I'm not supposed to be looking like this at this age after having that and this is again the benefit of doing this kind of work right working with someone like you or someone like me on these issues because you know I'm not saying we can avoid everything but at least 
we can go in and begin to address certain things that then possibly we can sidestep some of these health issues that we may not necessarily, like I quit smoking, I quit this, I quit that. You know, you just automatically move into a much more healthy lifestyle that I believe ultimately will lead to a much more active, uh, you know, you know, life as you grow older. Right. It's beneficial. Right. Right. But the overall point we're making is that the higher your score on the ACE study, the deeper correlation there is with health issues later in life. Exactly. Um, And so, so this is one part of what you do. And then there's another part of what you do, which is attachment patterning. Can you talk a little bit about how the two go together or what it is that drew you to attachment patterning? Work. Well, what, what attracted me is it just answered so many questions I had as to why I was feeling and experiencing all of the uh, uh, emotional, mental states that I was suffering with as an adult, why I had, a, I don't know, I, I just had a lack of memory. I, I could read, I could comprehend, but I could not retain ADHD alcohol, all, you know, you can, every, anyone can look up, you can Google PTSD and read about it all day long. You, you can find this stuff out. And I, and I was experiencing, but I never understood why. And then I went in and I started, uh, I started the uh, studying the attachment theory, which was really uh, that first started back in the forties by a wonderful research. Uh, his name, last name is uh, Bowlby. And, but it wasn't until the 90s that they are actually took his research and started, you know, really looking at it and developing this new modality called attachment pattern theory. And so what it is, is they noticed that based on how the caretaker relates or attunes themselves to the child, and we're talking, now they're even talking about prenatal, uh, that that will in itself, and they can pretty much predict that, well, pretty much, they say now claim 100% predict how that child is going to, which attachment uh, pattern that child is going to evolve into as an adult. And attachment is really based on how your caretaker uh, attuned to you, related to you, uh, the consistency, and the safety. Mm. That's, those, those are really, there's, there's other factors involved, but for me, those are the three main factors. My, you know, did they really attune themselves to us whenever we were children? Did they look into our eyes? Did they listen? Did they speak to us in a manner that was uh, age appropriate? You know, how did they address us? Was there safety? You know, did we feel safe? Did they, did they consistently, consistently meet our needs whenever we were hungry or needed to be changed, whatever that looks like. And so that would determine of whether or not you were, you know, had secure attachment or there's one that's called anxious ambivalent, avoidant, and then of course the fourth is disorganized. So. Secure. Secure. So you can pretty much land into one of these categories. Yeah, one or two. One so or two. Have, yeah. Some people, you know, have. A I think I have both anxious and avoidant <laughs> personally, but <laughs> yeah. secure, anxious, ambivalent, avoidant, and disorganized. Correct. 
Can you, is it possible to give us a short, a short summary of each? Is that possible? Is it too, too much? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like for instance, um, anxious, ambivalent. Okay. Look at the two words. Just look at anxious. Oh my gosh. Anxious. And then ambivalent mistrust. So basically uh, that child has experienced a lack of uh, on a certain level, the parent was inconsistent in attuning themselves, in meeting their needs, and uh, in whatever that, in, in, a, in a level of safety. Inconsistent is the key word, meaning sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they were right there, other times the bottle wasn't given for two or three hours later, and the, the child just sat there and cried and cried and cried and cried. And so the child is always, remember, state of survival. Are they going to feed? I, I, the child doesn't mentally understand that they need to attach, but they know in order to survive, they have to be fed. And so if they're not fed consistently at the same time, boom, 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 they're going to be in a state of threat. I'm Every cell in their body is on high alert. So it creates an anxious, ambivalent attachment pattern. Sometimes mom is there, sometimes she's not. Back and forth, back and forth. And I have to say this about moms, especially if they, they're a new mom or if they have multiple children, it's not an intentive, they're not intending to be inconsistent. Sometimes with two or three kids, oh my God, and having a lot of mothers have full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. So this is not like they're bad mothers. I want to take knock that right out right now. This is just women who have a lot on their plate. Okay. Yeah. A lot. And so this is the good news. They also did studies with this, these attachment patterns. You only need 30%. <laughs> I love it. That's such a good point. Your parenting doesn't have to be perfect. Your parenting, this is the study has to be good enough. Good enough. And that, thank you. That's a key phrase in all of this. Good enough, safe enough, consistent enough, attuned enough. You know, we're not looking for perfection. I love that. It's so necessary in the world today, especially with what the kind of pressure that gets placed. So tell us about avoidant. Avoidant has all of the all of that before, <laughs> plus um, uh, pretty clear signs of rejection, meaning the parent really isn't interested, uh, doesn't show up, doesn't really pay attention. You know, yeah, meets the basic needs, feeds the kid, changes the kid. They see a lot of kids like this in orphanages who grew up, you know, who are first in an orphanage. And then, because yeah, their basic needs were met. They were fed, they were clothed, they were warm, they were cool, all of that, they were safe, but no attunement, no, no affection, no touch, you know, kind of left alone on their own devices. And in fact, I think there's a story about this in the book that we're doing a book study on. Which is Uh, called a the boy who was raised as a dog by Dr. Bruce Perry. Yes, continue. Yes, that's. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, so that's so avoidant. So finally, the kid just wakes up one day. It's like, I don't need you. 
In fact, every time I reach for you, it, you reject me and it hurts my feelings. So I'm not even going to reach for you anymore because I know you're really not interested. Mm-hmm. And so the child develops an avoidant. And what they're avoiding, it's not that they don't want the, the relationship. It's not that they don't want to be with someone else. It's just that they're afraid of the intimacy because that's another thing the caregiver teaches the child is and that all of these things teach a child is how to be intimate with each other. You know? I want you to tell me if this theory I just had makes sense Okay, for me. Okay. Everybody gets a snapshot into my trauma. <laughs> <laughs> So I said, I think I'm anxious, ambivalent and avoidant, right? Together. But here's what I'm thinking. I think I became avoidant as a reaction to my fear and discomfort as the anxious, ambivalent. Like it became anxious, ambivalent has been so overwhelming to me that to go that I created this thing that's like, it's easier to be alone, but not because of being afraid of intimacy as much as it is about being, being afraid of the level of anxiety that is, can be created by my relationship with other people. Does that make, does that check out? Yeah, it does. Because remember, some of us develop, no, remember, we were kind of left on our own to develop these, these ways of taking care of ourselves. So you know, it's, it's open game here. You pick and choose what you want and what works for you. So yeah, like I said, in the beginning, it's like some people develop, uh, both. They have a primary and then they'll, they'll like for me, women, anxious, ambivalent, man, you guys scare Mm. me. (laughs) Mm. Men avoidant. (laughs) Right. Right. We're different. We can be different with gender, with sex. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, we, you know, that's what's so crazy, but wonderfully fantastical about the human brain, the human mind is it, it's so malleable in so many different ways and it will take care of us. Remember these little kids inside of us, they did the very best that they could. They did the best that they could. And I right. think some of us were like little miracles. We're miracles walking around. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about the malleable brain, but before we do, um, will you tell us, uh, I think we can all determine what secure attachment is, but can you tell us what disorganized is? Basically disorganized is a combination of all of that, uh-huh. but with the added, you know, uh, it, there's actual physical, uh, emotional, sexual, there was actual abuse, there was actual danger in the environment, uh, violence, just however you wanted it. So the child, they were, they're called, they call it disorganized because the child innately wants to be with the parent, but it's the parent themselves who are causing the hurt and the pain. And I'm talking physical mm-hmm. hurt and pain. A lot of times, and there's also very hurtful emotional pain involved too. Mm-hmm. So it's the child's just confused. It doesn't know which way's up, which way's down. Right. You know. Right. And you had that, and I had that, oh, and yeah. and and it's like, oh, and it's yeah. still just the spectrum, right? It's, so yeah. 
it's a degree. It's a degree. Right. I, mean, I have one, one of my instructors, he feels like everyone here in the U.S. right now is, is exhibiting a certain degree of borderline. Oh, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, wow. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause then, well, then you come up with societal trauma, right? Cultural yes. trauma. And it's yes. like, you know, that in the States, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on that alone, but I want to, you brought up the brain being malleable. And I think like, that's the hope in all yeah. of this, right? Yeah. Yes. So the neuroplasticity, you said a buzzword right now, or was attachment theory. And I would say another buzzword right now is neuroplasticity. So there is a lot of talk around the brain being plastic and the nervous system yes. being plastic and malleable. Um, why is that hopeful? for us. Well, that that's hopeful because that means that we can, and I'm going to preface this. It takes a lot. I mean, you know, this Jackie, it takes a lot of work. It takes desire, like a burning, like a fire in your burning desire to want to do this kind of work. This is not a just, Oh, I'm going to go sit on the couch and talk. No, 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 no. This requires time and attention, and a lot of deep, deep, deep self-reflection and work. And effort, real effort. effort. A lot of effort. effort. Action. Action. And see, this is a lot of action. We were talking about that earlier. Affirmations don't work unless you've got action behind them. And I really believe that. No one can convince me elsewhere, so don't, you know. Don't write to her if you, if you have a differing opinion. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm good with it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really good with that. But yeah, right. but yeah, but that's the hope because I believe, in fact, that's the name of my website. That's why I chose the name of my web, that there is victory over trauma. We can move beyond having it control and, and control our futures. And we're yeah. talking effort. We're also talking years. Yeah. Time, you know, time, effort. And, and like, this is the kind of shit you take home with you. You yes. take it into the other 11 hours of your day that you're not in therapy. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I think that's a misconception for people. People just want it to happen to them. And it's like no. you rewiring a brain. <laughs> Imagine rewiring the most complicated electrical panel you've ever seen in your life. Thank you. (laughs) Exactly. Because it is. It's like open up your computer and try to reconfigure your computer just looking at the little, I don't even know what's in a computer anymore. (laughs) It's like it's it's the same. But it would be hard. (laughs) It would be, yeah. I, I, you know. uh, So, uh, yeah, exactly. Good. I love that analogy. You're absolutely right. Um, and that's why it requires time and thoughtfulness and consideration. It requires us to allow ourselves to just sit back and say, okay, I'm going to dedicate this for me. I want to heal. I want to get beyond all of this trauma and these mis- mis- misfiring, misperceptions, mis- all of this stuff. I want to get behind it. Mm. Oh, this is such a powerful episode. I want to talk. I want to do another three episodes on all different kinds of things that are coming from this. And we have to start wrapping. Um, so I'm going to fire question you. Okay. Okay. We'll see. 
first thing though I want to do before that is, is there anything else you feel you really need to say right now to the, to people listening? I, okay. Yes. You know, wherever you are in the country, wherever you are, this kind of work is available to you. And you just go online, Google it, somatic healing, uh, 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 the somatic experience practitioner or practice. See what comes up. Find someone or start with cognitive behavior, you know, but find someone who specializes in trauma. You can, it is available. We have so much good stuff out here now. It's crazy. And we can do this. We don't have to suffer anymore. And that's what I want to tell people. You don't have to suffer anymore. Um, Beautiful. The other trauma modality I know that's being used a lot is EMDR. I don't know what you feel about that, but those are, that's another modality to look at if you can't find. Yeah. The tapping. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tapping. Yeah. There are many different ways to go, but. I'm a big believer in somatic work, but you know. Yeah. Um, All right, Deborah, ready? I'm ready. Based on what we just talked about, what are three suggested books you might have? Well, of course, first one, Peter Levine, Waking the Tiger. Uh, They're not books, but they're YouTube, which I feel like is just a good, there's, there's some lectures on YouTube in order to really begin to learn about the nervous system. Go on and search for Stephen Porges, fabulous. And then a third is uh, uh, Daniel Siegel. Daniel Siegel. Uh, he wrote. Um, he wrote something, didn't he? That we all read. Yeah, yeah. One uh, of the many things, maybe. Yeah, I've got it on my bookshelf. Uh, but I mean, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, data. Another one is uh, by, uh, oh, here's the brain wise therapist. For those of you who really want to break in is Bonnie uh, Bodenock. Just wonderful way of presenting how the brain is affected by trauma. Good for <laughs> early developmental stuff. Fabulous. All of it. All of it. <clears throat> all of it's good. Other ones I'll mention are The Body Keeps the Score by by Bessel van der Kolk. Oh yeah. He's and, good. and, uh, yeah, I'll leave it there. I think that's enough. Um, <laughs> what, when I say the word healing, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Relief. Mm. Oh, Just that's so beautiful. Relief, relax, calm. Mm. Amen. Mm-hmm. Do you have a daily mantra right now? If so, what is it? Yeah, um, I have a lot of gratitude. Mm. What are you grateful for? Yeah, what am I grateful for? Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, whenever you get on this side of it, you're grateful for all of it. Mm. Because even though a lot of it's dark and heavy, I also now realize how... I could never do what I do today if I had not been or had those experiences. So that's how we transform the darkness into the light. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's really what happens. We transform the darkness into the light. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love it. 
Brene Brown always asks this question and I really like it. So I'm going to ask it to you right now. Okay. What's on your nightstand? Ah! <laughs> well, right now for the last couple of weeks, been... <laughs> the boy who was raised as a dog by Bruce Perry, my, yeah. this, this, I mean, I have Jackie, you, you gave me this book. You turned me onto this book because of what we're going to be doing with it. But I just love it so much because he really goes into uh, how everything, why and how and what, all of these questions that, you know, we've addressed, some of them we've addressed here today, but he even takes it even, he's, he's got a very rich, rich way of explaining things. God, I, 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 I you know, he's, he has another book coming out with Oprah yeah. called What Happened to You. So I think- yeah. He might blow up, but I, I just have so much respect for him and the work he does. And I want to say, um, to circle back, my mom actually gave me that book. And it's so interesting because wow. I think that there, I have, a t- I have had a tendency with my mom in the past to not want her to teach me things, right? Like, I think we all, you know... <laughs> I know, I know, mom, I know. (laughs) Um, And I think it's such a powerful, and I read it and it just blew my mind. And look, here we are now. And I want to do this workshop and blah, blah, blah. And, And I think it's such a powerful example of just the healing that I've done over the years, the somatic healing I've done has left me a more open What you said about healing, being relief, calm, I'm much more open. I'm not as quick to be activated by everything all the time. Yes. Um, Yes. Yeah. Yeah, That's it. One other person, which I have a high, high regard and respect for is uh, Gabor Matei. Yeah. Who we talked about on this. Yeah. You mentioned it earlier. You mentioned him earlier, but he's, yeah, he's... mm. He's on YouTube also. So you can go listen to some of his lectures on YouTube. Yeah, he is brilliant. He is. They're all oh, so many good people. So yeah. many good things. Yeah. Thank you so much. So if you want to contact Deborah directly, you can email her at D Thompson Cox. That's T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N-C-O-X at gmail.com yes. to schedule an online complimentary session and also victoryovertrauma.com. Correct. Amazing. And thank you so much, Deborah. You're so welcome. Thank you, Jackie. I so appreciate this. Thank you so much for listening in to Healing Out Loud. Be sure to stay in touch through Instagram at Shay Jackie or my website, JackieShay.com. If you are interested in continuing this conversation around knowledge, write to me as soon as possible and we will hook you up with this workshop that we have. Um, I hope you are able to implement what you learned this week and I'll be back soon with more fun and love.